You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Russia says it had nothing, nothing to do with the Salisbury nerve agent attacks, but no one really seems to be buying the denial. The U.S. indicts a North Korean hacker in matters pertaining to the Lazarus Group. British Airways sustains a data breach. The Silence Gang makes some noise in the underworld. We've got notes from yesterday's Billington Cybersecurity Summit. And Twitter bans a grandstander for life. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, September 7th, 2018. Russian authorities responded to British accusations before the UN that the GRU carried out an attempted assassination in England by doubling down on increasingly implausible denial and counter-accusation. The Moscow Times reports that Ambassador Vasily Nyebenzia said of the Skripal incident that, quote, We take it very seriously, and we have been asking for cooperation from the UK authorities from day one, as if the aggrieved party here is Russia and no one else. The information operation may be wearing thin, but it would probably be a mistake to regard the apparent recklessness of the GRU operation as evidence that Moscow's hoods are stumble bums. The brutal directness of the attack carries a message of its own. The UK and, in all probability, its closest allies are preparing to strike back in cyberspace. It's all lies, says Moscow, but the US, France, Germany and Canada, at least, are all in full official agreement that Putin done it. One clarification. Mr. Nyebienza did tell the press that, quote, There is no GRU, by the way. I forgot to tell the UK ambassador. It was renamed to the chief directorate of the general staff. It's no GRU anymore, quote. The proper acronym would be GU, that is Chief Directorate, as opposed to Chief Reconnaissance Directorate. People reporting on Russia know this, but most of them have preferred to hold on to the former letters, not only for familiarity, but for the three-letter genre common to many intelligence services like SVR, FSB, and so on. So, pedantically noted but we're going to keep saying GRU. The name change barely amounts to a rebranding. We'll continue to say we're going to Dunkin' Donuts, even after they rename themselves Dunkin'. It's the same reliable product. Some observers think the GRU, yes, we'll say it again, is becoming an embarrassment for Russian President Putin, 
Disdainful accounts of the GRU officers' carefree wanderings in front of British surveillance cameras by UK authorities have fed this line. Other observers aren't so sure and think it means instead that the GRU has become Mr. Putin's preferred tool for instilling shock and fear. The second alternative seems likelier. GRU operations have attracted international attention, while those of the KGB airs SVR and FSB have been much less obtrusive. The GRU has certainly become the noisy one of the trio. Fancy Bear is often in the headlines, but Cozy Bear usually is not. And when Cozy is, it's usually by association with Fancy. The GRU's motto may be, The greatness of the motherland in your glorious deeds. But, Odorant doom timorant, Let them hate us as long as they fear us, might be better. And we'd be willing to bet that when Mr. Putin is among friends, he calls them GRU, just like us. The U.S. indicted a North Korean hacker yesterday in conjunction with Lazarus Group attacks on Sony and the Bangladesh Bank, and also in connection with WannaCry. Park Jin Hyok worked for Chosun Expo Joint Venture, a reconnaissance general bureau front with offices in both North Korea and China. This marks the first indictment of a named North Korean for state-sponsored hacking offenses. Now agents of each of the familiar four, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, are under U.S. indictment. It's unlikely that any of them, of course, will appear in a U.S. court, but the indictments are part of the naming and shaming process. Of these regimes, at least three of them seem pretty shameless. On occasion, Beijing looks a little red-faced. There are other red faces elsewhere for reasons having to do with carelessness over data. FOIA.gov, an information site administered by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, inadvertently exposed inquirers' personal information. This issue was a self-inflicted misconfiguration, not a hack. British Airways has reported a data breach. 380,000 sets of payment details were obtained by criminals who hacked into the airline's data. Group IB is tracking an underworld development. The small, two-person, but scrappy gang called Silence is giving the Cobalt Group a run for its ill-gotten money in the ATM jackpotting field. The ninth annual Billington Cybersecurity Summit was held yesterday in Washington, well attended by roughly a thousand registered participants. The theme was partnership and partnership's place in strengthening cyber defenses. A number of senior U.S. federal IT and cybersecurity executives presented overviews of their agency's priorities. There was a general consensus that cybersecurity increasingly pervades everything their enterprises do, but that everyone needs to do more security by design that legacy systems remain a field of vulnerabilities, and that their modernization and replacement represents an opportunity to improve security, and that the government competes for cyber talent at a disadvantage and must look for creative ways of attracting people into federal service. There's a more nuanced approach to cyber deterrence emerging in both British and American official thinking. It must become, several speakers said, more graduated and proportionate than the mutual assured destruction of the Cold War's nuclear deterrence regime. Mark Sayers, Deputy Director for National Security Strategy at the UK Cabinet Office, pointed out that there are a great many different actors with many different motivations, and they operate against an expansive attack surface. So cyber requires agility and nuance. 
consensus among the speakers was that retaliation must be calibrated to the threat. Lawfare remains very much a part of that complex deterrent. A number of speakers expressed satisfaction at the U.S. indictment of a North Korean Lazarus groupie. Senior representatives of the intelligence community wanted everyone to understand very clearly that they were fully committed to securing the upcoming U.S. elections. General Nakasone was particularly direct. He closed his keynote by saying there is no higher priority for U.S. Cyber Command and NSA than the security of the midterm elections. And recent proposals that companies be permitted or even encouraged to hack back at their tormentors in cyberspace? Nobody on either side of the Atlantic seemed to like that idea very much. So if you're among those who've yearned for privateering in cyberspace, you may have to wait a bit for your letter of mark and reprisal. But if those privateers eventually do sail, we're betting they'll home port in Baltimore, just as they did in 1812. And finally, InfoWars' Alex Jones, best known for his repellent theory that the parents of children murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School were faking it for political reasons, was last seen vigorously tugging on Superman's cape as he vamped for the camera in the background during testimony by Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey before the Senate Wednesday. Mr. Jones got his wish yesterday. Twitter just banned him for life. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. And joining me once again is Dr. Charles Clancy. He's the executive director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. Dr. Clancy, welcome back. Uh, I saw some news recently about the state of Virginia. Uh, in their annual budget, they included $25 million for a Virginia Tech-led Commonwealth Cyber Initiative. 
that you all at Virginia Tech are going to be uh, a key part of. Uh, can you sort of walk us through this? What what's the um, what does the state of Virginia see that uh, they they think this is a good place to invest their money? Well, there's two major things that the Commonwealth is looking to accomplish with this investment. Uh, first is uh, the workforce gap, and I know we've talked about this on on prior shows in the past. There is a total of 43,000 open jobs in the Washington D.C. metro region in cybersecurity. And uh, the Commonwealth is looking for how they can make some targeted investments in university programs uh, that will shrink that gap uh, by yeah. increasing the pipeline of students coming out of, of universities. I um, mean, it's not just coming out of four-year degrees or coming out of master's programs. Uh, it's really a, a whole pipeline. So looking at K-12, through how those students uh, go into either community college uh, or four-year degrees, and from there, uh, post-baccalaureate training, uh, master's programs, advanced degrees, uh, and professional certifications, which are, are obviously critical to the workforce in this area. So figuring out how to map that pipeline, identify the hotspots and the bottlenecks to really make sure that we're producing as many people as possible is sort of that the first objective of, of the overall initiative. Hmm. The second objective is around innovation. So uh, if you look at the, the Washington, D.C. cyber economy, it's heavily driven by government services contracts. Right. Um, for the most part, we're not selling uh, software licenses uh, in this region. We're selling um, uh, man hours of labor on government contracts. Mm -hmm. uh, and that provides for a stable economy, but it doesn't provide an economy with a lot of upside potential uh, and, and commercial, um, uh, commercial scale. Hmm. Uh, so the idea is that if we can amp up the university research that's happening in cyber, we can connect that with a growing venture capital ecosystem and really try and foster and support and nurture the startup ecosystem uh, and bring some of the larger tech companies from the West Coast in to augment the defense contractor base that we already have, uh, then we can begin to start to push this economy more towards commercial products, uh, certainly continuing to support the government uh, ecosystem that's critical to the region. So $25 million uh, certainly uh, sounds like a sizable sum of money. I, how, how do you spread that around? What, what, how do you uh, calibrate where it goes to get the best uh, effect for the taxpayers' dollars? Well, we're looking at a couple of, of targeted investments uh, with those resources. Um, and the goal really is to invest in programs that will be able to sustain themselves long term. Hmm. Keep in mind, this is only one-time money. And uh, once it's spent, it's spent. Uh. So... Uh, the goal is to use it to stand up uh, new degree programs that will ultimately be self-sustaining uh, with tuition revenue uh, and stand up new research programs, uh, which will ultimately uh, be viable based on grants and contracts that, the, that those teams are able to win. Um, so it's really about sort of focused investments in certain areas that will build these self-sustaining programs. Dr. Charles Clancy, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Rich Bache. 
He's a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and the Naval War College. Following his service, he was a principal at Deloitte, where he led their global cyber threat and vulnerability management practice. Today, he's the chief information security officer at Wells Fargo, where he manages a security organization with over 2,000 staff, securing and enabling Wells Fargo's enterprise. Responsibility here at Wells Fargo includes kind of the overall strategy and execution of our information security program. And that's kind of looked at in different facets and capabilities. So that would include things such as access management, technology engineering, or I should say information security engineering, um, network security, cryptologic services, distributed engineering, policies, security awareness, governance, um, risk assessments, third-party information security, and we call cyber defense, which would be things such as our traditional security operations center, which we call our cyber threat fusion center, our red teams, our um, operational security, cyber threat intelligence, and then, of course, all the governance that goes into running a program. Now, it's a lot going on there, as you describe it. What is your uh, strategy for, for, for keeping an eye on all of that? What's your management style? Yes, yeah, so from a management style standpoint, um, we really focus on risk management. At the end of the day, when I think about how we make decisions and where we invest um, and how we define good, the best analogy I can think of is um, – uh, the decisions either you make as a personal investor, like a portfolio management, or something like uh, credit risk. When a financial institution grants somebody credit, they are granting credit with the possibility and a risk that an entity may not you know, pay it back. Um, but you come up with guidelines and data points that allow you to accept that risk. So when we look at what we're doing here, we're trying to make sure that uh, we understand the risk and are allowed to make good decisions on that, on that risk. You could keep buying more. You can keep doing things differently. But the risk will probably always remain because we're connected to the, uh, you know, to the Internet. Right. And so if the people who are, are working um, for you, um, what are your expectations in terms of the way that they communicate things to you, uh, the way they describe their needs, set their budgets and their priorities, and things like that? Uh, great question. Uh, so my expectation of, of my leadership team is to run their organizations like a business. And, I, and I, what I mean by a business is I want them to feel um, ownership and accountability of the capability portfolio that they establish and to understand that the capabilities that they're designing, that they are funding, what risks are they trying to address? And I encourage them to, when they're thinking about it, to, to, to use, a, you know, kind of a, a formula to help drive their decision. And that formula is um, risk equals vulnerabilities. There are always vulnerabilities. And, and by the way, not just technical vulnerabilities, human vulnerabilities. You and I, right, fall victim to a phishing email. 
There are vulnerabilities associated with where you decide to put your data center. If it's in the path of a hurricane, you, you, know, you incur some risk. So vulnerabilities times the threat. The threat changes pending what's going on um, uh, geopolitically, um, what's going on with vendors, what's going on with customers. The threat changes, which means the risk change times the asset value. We want to obviously understand and protect our highest value assets, you know, maybe more so than a lower classified asset. And then the most important thing, which really I think drives the decision process of where you invest your money and, and the actions that you take is what's called the probability of occurrence. And what that means is, is that particular risk, that particular security issue, that vulnerability, that exploit, is it being capitalized out anywhere else? Because there's a lot of theory associated to information security risks about what you can do. And then there's the actual reality of somebody, um, for lack of better terms, weaponizing something. Hmm. So when, when that becomes kind of weaponized, the risk goes to what I would call the actionable level of risk. You have to make it a priority because if another entity has fallen victim as a result of a particular action or exploit, it's just a matter of time before they potentially turn and focus it on your organization. So that should help them with their priorities. My goal is to know about it, get it, and use it. The most important thing is a lot of people like to know about things, but they may not get it, or they may know about it and get it and not use it. And then some people may use it, but not the right people get to use it. At the end of the day, if that information can help us get awareness, whether that be proactive, preemptive, situational, to the right decision maker in the organization, the right risk manager, because everybody should be a risk manager when you're making decisions, if the information, if, if we can get the information to the right person and help them make a, the best risk-based decision that they can, we've done the best that we can do. But that ultimately is the real value of threat intelligence. It's how does it get baked back into the decision process in where. And what's nice about intelligence these days, at least what we're able to do, is it's across many disciplines. You may help the fraud teams make better decisions. You may help the AML team make better decisions. You might help the social networking team make better decisions, physical security make decisions, and of course your traditional information security teams. So, you know, ultimately it's how you use that information that's most important. That's Rich Bache. He's the Chief Information Security Officer at Wells Fargo. We'll have an extended version of this interview over on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash the cyberwire. Our Patreon supporters will get access to it first, and then in a few days it'll be available to everyone. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.